a lot of it comes down to hiring because there was another profile of rep that typically didn't work out, which were people that came from environments that had a lot of enablement, a lot of process, and a lot of supporting resources for their roles, like people on LinkedIn. We hired a lot of people from LinkedIn that were very successful, but sometimes we would hire people from LinkedIn who you'd throw them into Gong's environment and they would just get crushed because at LinkedIn, I've never worked at LinkedIn, but so I hear they have very well-defined processes and lots of resources. And during this time in Gong's trajectory, we still weren't there yet. Hey, Chris, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. Mate, we'll get right into it. Want to take you back to your early days. What got you into sales to begin with? Depends on how far we want to go back. Let's go right. My dad worked in sales and I watched him working in sales growing up. And I remember when I was a little kid, we lived on the end of a fairway of a golf course. And so we had golf balls being hit into my backyard all the time. We would probably collect a couple hundred free golf balls per summer. And so I would collect them and I would sell them. So this was like my first experience ever selling something. Like my dad encouraged me to do this. As a side yeah. note, I do something similar with my son today. I have him like selling soda yeah. during the hot summer months around here. So there was that. Then when I got into school and university, I was selling coupon books door to door and a couple other like odd, like college kid type sales jobs. But there was a moment I had toward the tail end of college where my aspiration at the time was to become a professional drummer. And I had practiced so much that I developed tendonitis in all four of my limbs, like both elbows, both knees, which is a career ending injury, right? You can't practice for hours a day if you have tendonitis. And so for a while, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And the only thing I knew is I wanted to make a lot of money. And so my best friend and roommate at the time, who is currently the co-founder of my business, and I've actually started a couple companies with him. He's never sold anything in his life, as far as I know. He's like chief technology officer, very good with technology. But he had the insight back then to tell me, if you want to do economically for yourself, you should learn how to sell. I remember it well. We were at an amusement park with our girlfriends at the time, both of which are respective wives now. And I was like telling him, I I don't know exactly what I want to do next, but I do know I want to make a lot of money. And he said those words, they burned into my brain. If you want to do well for yourself economically, you should go learn how to sell. And so I did that. And I've been doing that. Great. He's not a sales guy, but he sold you on a sales career. Oh, and he runs the most ruthless pipeline reviews too. Is not being a sales guy. I'm like, terrified to walk into our weekly pipeline reviews because of the questions he's going to ask me. You would think you would be able to bullshit a CTO through a pipeline review. Not this, not him. <laughs> he knows how to catch up. Uh, we'll come back to him then. So obviously then you've gone into a professional era of sales and then you ended up joining Gong, which was a lesser known startup back then. So what drew you to Gong to begin with? Before I joined Gong, me and Britton, who is the CTO that I've been referring to, we were starting a company called Conversature. We started it in August 2015, and Conversature was supposed to be Gong. This was before we knew about Gong. This was before Gong came out of stealth mode. We wanted to build what we referred to as a conversation analytics startup. And long story short, We did that for about 18 months. We bootstrapped it. In other words, my bank balance went down every month for 18 months in a row. 
in total, we must have made like $30,000 in revenue, like just pennies, basically. And so we closed up shop shortly after Gong came out of stealth mode. Gong came out of stealth mode in June 2016. I remember it well. It was a very dark day for me (laughs) because I knew who I was going to have to compete with. And then fast forward to October 2016, we closed up shop and I joined Gong in November 2016. And Amit had reached out to me, Amit's the CEO, and he said, mm-hmm. I like what you did with Conversature and would love to have you come help us build Gong. And I was already secretly scheming about how I was going to get in front of him because I really wanted to continue this journey and to continue building the category. And it was history from there. Awesome. What a That's great really story. Cool. Yeah. I never knew about that. So, mate. Can you share as to how big of a business it was when you actually did then shake hands with Amit and join the business? It was a little peanut. It was a baby. When I joined, it was at $178,000 in ARR, which seems risky, but you have to remember where I was coming from. I was closing my own (laughs) business. So anything was less risky than that. The website looks like my six-year-old daughter drew it with a crayon on a napkin. Like it was a really bad... Fun fact, if you go Google Gong Blue logo, like the original Gong logo, you'll see what the logo was back then. I don't want to say, I don't want to trash it too much because I'm actually not sure who designed it. (laughs) But nothing told me or anybody that this company was going to be successful, except for a couple of things. One, they had a great leadership team. And then two, I believed in the product market dynamic between what products they were Mm -hmm. building and the market receptivity to that product. The size of the company, tiny. They had raised $6 million by the time I joined. So there was a little bit of a security blanket. And the website was just horrendous. And so really small company. I didn't expect it to become what it was. I just wanted to continue doing what I was doing. And I thought it would be fun. And in some senses, I got to find you. Yeah. You obviously in that space before Gong went there. What was it that triggered to you and, hey, something needs to be built here that's going to take over this area? Yeah. My tail end of working for a company called InsideSales.com, I was leading a few reps. And I was also desperate at that point in my life to start a company. I almost didn't care what it was as long as it was like legal, ethical, etc. <laughs> I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I remember stumbling across this industry called speech analytics, right? There's these old companies that started in like the early 2000s called Call Miner. And it's basically an old stodgy version of Gong, but for call centers, right? Not for like B2B salespeople, like high volume call center. And I found some analyst who studied the industry and I got him on a call and I asked him, why doesn't this exist for B2B sales? Because I don't have visibility into what my reps are saying and I need it. And he goes, I don't know. And that was all I needed. I was like, I'm starting this. And I also was fortunate enough where over the last couple of years, I was making decent money and my living expenses were very low at that time in my life. And so I saved almost all my money. And so by the time I left to pursue this opportunity, I had a couple of years worth of living expenses in my bank. I was like 23 or 24 years old. I had just had my first kid. My wife is just a saint because I get home from my six-figure job one day and I'm like, I want to quit my job. I want to start. And to this day, her entire criteria for my career decisions is as long as we're not living on the street, you can do whatever you want, which is a huge blessing, right? That's not the case for everybody. Some people have husbands and wives and significant others that 
you know, don't quite let them do as crazy mm. shit as I've done in my career. Yes. Especially when you just had your first kid too. That's, oh, you know, totally. that's usually yeah. a time where, you know, people want some stability and you're coming in going, let's rock and roll a brand new stuff. I, mean, I should almost be critical of my wife thinking back. I'm like, why did you let me do this? <laughs> yeah. So Chris, then going back to this tiny company that you had joined, you obviously believed in the vision. You knew about the space. You met Amit and it sounded like you had a good leadership bunch. And then... Well, obviously, it wasn't all rose-tinted glasses from there, I'd imagine. What were some of the early struggles that you'd come across? We struggled for a really long time to help buyers justify spending their money on Gong because they would want to do it. But as you two know, most of the time, if a champion wants to buy something, they have to make a business case to some economic buyer. And I'm embarrassed to admit how long it took us to get clear on what that should have looked like. We were like, we're trying to think of what mm. the ROI of Gong is. Is it time saved by sales managers coaching? They can coach faster? Is that it? <laughs> we actually thought that was it for a while and it like it never worked. Mm. And it took us a while just to land on the fact that we could influence your typical sales productivity metrics like close rates and deal size and sales cycle length and depending on what their sales motion looked like. So that was a struggle. I don't think there was any dark moment though, during my time at Gong, it was more just like, there was so much to be done and there were so many different demands on everybody because of the business was growing so fast that it was constant strength. You really have to enjoy the work to be able to survive in an environment like that. There was never like any specific event where we had like an existential crisis, nothing like that, but it was just day after day, just grinding and grinding. And I thought I worked hard before Gong. Gong taught me a lot about what a true work ethic actually can look like. I really like what you said before, yeah. Because Gong, when you jumped in, was it's effectively breaking new barrier, right? There wasn't something that existed. So you had to actually go in when you're selling and prove to someone what the ROI is. It's not something we could be like, there's 50 of these that you've already bought before, you've looked at, you've done, there's something comparing to. This is, hey, you haven't thought of this before, but you should buy it. And a lot of the people we're talking to, obviously, smaller companies that are a lot of people are facing that, that you can't just point to we've used salesforce and this is like salesforce but better one of the things that i'm almost insulted by is every now and then somebody on the internet will say something to me where they're like oh you just got lucky and you found like a company that had insane product market fit and look i'm not going to deny that there's some element of luck in my story but gong was very easy to get people excited about but very mm. hard to actually sell those are two different things, right? You can show somebody some new innovative technology and their eyes pop out of their head and it seems like their head's spinning, but actually getting that deal across the finish line, multi-threading and teaching people about a new category and evangelizing it, especially when that category doesn't have a line item. Yeah. To your point, they're not budgeting that in advance and you have to go make a case and you have to create a line item and you have to educate people on the value. That's hard. We still grew fast and we were successful at it, but Gong was easy to market. Gong was easy to get people excited about. Gong was very hard to actually close deals and sell. So how did you crack the code, Chris? You talk a lot about your playbook, the 100 million Mara playbook that you actually had worked on. What were the key components to started to realize, aha, this thing's going to work? Yeah, th there was actually a couple of moments. So the first one is I would give a shout out to a guy who probably never even logs into his LinkedIn account. His name is Jameson Young. 
And he was the first VP of sales at Gong. I say that there were multiple VPs of sales. He's still the SVP of sales, right? He joined Gong shortly after me, like probably five or $700,000 in revenue. And he's still there growing it. And he deserves a lot of the credit for helping grow the company as fast as it did. That said, there were a couple things that helped us really skyrocket our growth. One was a marketing program that I worked on hand in hand with our VP of marketing called Gong Labs. So when I first walked into the business, there was this ebook that we were gating behind a landing page. And I can't remember what it was called, but it was like five secrets of top performing salespeople based on analyzing 25,000 calls with data. And I go to Udi, who is my boss. I'm like, Udi, you got to let me turn this into an article, right? This is like gold that we're hiding behind a gate. And I think if we put it out there, this could go viral. And this was like the first few weeks on the job for me. And so he was like, sure, go for it. And so I wrote this article and then we had this conversation about where we publish it. We ended up going with Sales Hacker, which was like an old sales media company at the time. It, actually, fun fact, go-to-market fund just bought back Sales Hacker. A couple of oh, weeks. did they? Yeah, they rebranded it to go-to-market now. Anyway, we published with Sales yeah. Hacker and that article probably got two or 3,000 shares within a week and a ton of inbound demand. And we continued doing that marketing program for years, right? Like we would analyze sales calls in different ways and publish the results. And there was always like a cheat sheet at the end that people could download and we'd capture their contact info and our SDRs were always on top of that. And so that really helped us get to escape velocity pretty quick. So that was one thing that helped. The second thing a few years later, as we were trying to crack the code on selling to enterprises was when we started to get very predictable about the use cases that we would sell to and how to demo to those use cases accordingly. And I can't remember what all of them are, but we had this big initiative where it was like, all right, there's four buckets that we typically solve for. There's onboarding new sellers, there's coaching existing sellers, there's deal management, right? Not forget coaching, but just spot checking the mm -hmm. pipeline. And then there's rolling out new initiatives, new messaging, new pricing, and making sure that new behavior is showing up in the field. Actually, I think I just nailed it. I think those were the four. And we reoriented our entire go-to-market motion towards selling those four things. Whereas before it was totally an open-ended, right? We'd have all these sales reps. They're all asking different questions. They're all demoing the product in different ways. So that was a bit of an epiphany for us where we cracked the code on, there are four pillars of value that we typically sell to. And your job in discovery is to figure out which one your buyer primarily lands in and then demo to that and then run a proof of concept against that and then build the business case to align with that and teaching all of our sellers, these four value buckets and you know how to sell to each one that led to a lot of repeatability that we didn't have before, especially selling to like mid market and enterprise buyers. Yeah, and repeatability is what you need to scale fast, right? Like it has to be something that can replicate that you can just continue because that's how you can get more people on board. You can bring more salespeople and everyone's singing from that same hymn book, which is super powerful. Yeah, that's right. So you've got the process defined. What about repeatability when it comes to people, Chris? You talk a lot about in your post about hiring profiles and making sure these are the things that you must look out for on a sales trip. Can you walk us through some of your hiring pattern and how you develop that at Gong and actually, again, made it repeatable. Yeah. 
I think Ryan Longfield is the guy, the mm. child behind this one, mm. right? The chief revenue officer at Gong, mm. who was my boss for a while I was there. He aligned us all on a specific profile of people that we were hiring for, right? We're actually doing that at P Club right now as a funny side note. This morning, I got into a borderline yelling match with me and my co-founder and our head of content because we're hiring a marketer. And after a bunch of interviews, we were like, all right, we keep switching like what we're looking for. We keep switching the profile. So let's get into a room and let's align on this. And we thought we were going to exit that meeting with a profile of a marketer that we wanted. No, we, we just yelled at each other for 30 minutes, which tells me it was good that we had that conversation because we all had such dissenting views on what we should be hiring for. That is the value of a hiring profile, right? We all had in our minds what we should be hiring for. So Ryan Longfield installed that process at Gong, right? Ideal attributes, step-by-step -step hiring process. We're going to use to screen for those attributes, questions to screen for those attributes, so he probably deserves the majority of the credit of doing that across the board at Gong. I think my advice to people who are hiring sales reps is number one, get clear on what you're hiring for, right? If the job you're hiring for could speak, what would it tell you it needs in a candidate to be successful? And the answer to that question, right? What are the skills, the traits, the experiences that you need or a rep needs to be successful? That ends up being your hiring mm -hmm. profile. And then you design a process and a set of questions or assessments or what have you to be able to flesh those out. And the specific ones just depend on which attributes you're hiring for. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. So you've got such a robust process when it comes to hiring, onboarding, you've got a good playbook. I imagine you still had salespeople missing their code attainment. Can you lend on some of the reasons why that would still be the case? Or was it just an individual selling ability? Was it a downside of the coaching that went in through the sales management or what actually led them down the path of not being successful? I think it's different for everybody, right? So when I think of some of the reps that didn't quite make it, I think part of it is I had my hiring profile wrong, right? I actually hired well against a profile, but it was the wrong profile. So I'll give you an example. For a time, I was running the expansion part of our business, right? Selling mm -hmm. additional organizations within our enterprise accounts. And so I thought that hiring people from Yelp would have been like a good profile because I'm like, oh, they have a ton of people who are managing existing customers and need to upsell. So I hired a few of them and none of them worked out. They were great people. They were good reps. They just didn't work out in our environment. And the reason is the, the Yelp reps they were doing upsells with existing buying centers. They were working with a CMO who wanted to buy. They were managing an existing relationship, whereas we were trying to go find new buying centers within very big enterprise accounts. Very different yeah. upsell motion. And so I think that's one thing is just like, it's easy to create a hiring profile. It's hard to create the right one. And so you have to monitor that. And that eventually led us to reorienting that hiring profile, saying the source of upsell matters when we're interviewing these people. Are they finding new buying centers or are they just upselling existing relationships? So that was one reason people didn't work out. You could mm. arguably blame me for that. In fact, <laughs> you can't blame anybody else but me. So we just, let's, we'll say let's it. agree on that then. Yeah. Other reasons. I think there were a lot of it comes down to hiring. Because there was another profile of rep that typically didn't work out, which were people 
that came from environments that had a lot of enablement, a lot of process and a lot of supporting resources for their roles. And we were like people in LinkedIn. We hired a lot of people from LinkedIn that were very successful, but sometimes we would hire people from LinkedIn who you'd throw them into Gong's environment and they would just get crushed because at LinkedIn, I've never worked at LinkedIn, but so I hear they have very well-defined processes and lots of resources. And during this time in Gong's trajectory, we still weren't there yet. We were still trying to figure all this out. And so that led us to reorienting our hiring profile to hire people that could deal with ambiguity. And they thrived in that building environment. When you're scaling fast and things are going, that's pretty much the environment, right? Like you, you can't have every single duck in a row because the thing is a rocket ship. And so you, you need people who can adapt every day. We like, this doesn't exist. It's cool. I'm going to work that through. Once you know what your four buckets are and that's repeatable, but the people who can take that and go, cool, that's all I really need. I can get my job done. I can get out there. I can make it work. You know, that, that's the goal. And when you're hiring people, no matter how good all your hiring profiles, you're still hiring a person, right? And so there's always that potential chance that you didn't get the right one. And, and when that did happen for you guys, were you of the fail fast mantra and did you successfully do? I wouldn't say we, we would fire fast when it was obvious that we should. And it wasn't always obvious. If somebody was struggling, then we had a pretty good performance management process that would allow them to turn it around, right? Usually it was like 60 to 90 days. And it wasn't like an HR typical performance management process where it's just like uh, uh, a signal before we're about to fire you. It was actually like, do these things and let's turn this around. But if we don't, then we might have to talk about exiting you from the business. Going back to one of the things we talked about, though, is the ambiguity. I still haven't cracked the code on hiring for people that can handle that because everybody we hire at P-Club right now, P-Club's only a one-year-old business. We're growing like crazy, but we're not operating smoothly right now. I'll be the first to tell you that. And I haven't figured out how to hire for ambiguity because anytime you go to an interview, even if you try to scare them away, you're like, look, this is going to be an ambiguous environment. Not everything's going to be figured out. And I want you to think very seriously about whether you want that because it can be emotionally taxing. Yeah. And I'm yet to ever meet somebody that responds to that question. Like, yeah, you're right. I don't want it. They always <laughs> yeah. say they want it. They always say they want it, but then you get into the environment and whether you can actually handle it. Did you guys end up interviewing somebody who has cracked the code on that? Let me know. Cause I will listen to that. If we actually do crack that code, I think that'll be our new company. You could bottle that and sell it to every tech company because I think totally. we're all struggling with the same. When we talk to portfolio potential portfolio companies, we have very similar discussion points. And the way we're doing it now is, I think before we even get to them pitching us, I do three meetings where I'm like, "This is the model we use. This is how we do stuff. It is different from everyone else. You might not like it. Everyone's like, yes, I love it. I'm in 100. percent And then I'll wait a week and then I'll have the same meeting and I basically say the same thing I just said before, but in a week's difference. And I'm like. Just repeating everything I've said. Are you sure? Everyone says yes the first time. We're at number two. And then I do it a third time. And you just, because you want that honest reaction. Because some people do struggle in ambiguity. Some people don't want some of the things you're doing. But people often do have a great difficulty in saying that to your face when you're talking to them. And, and you're doing it for the right reasons. It's no one when they're hiring wants someone to come in and not be successful, right? We're bringing people in because we want them to be successful. We want to grow them as people. And yeah, you do your best to weed that out. I don't know if there is a solution to it. And I think I'm probably particularly bad at screening for that trait because I embody that trait in spades so much so that when there is certainty, I'm bored out of my mind. My entire <laughs> yeah. career, like every role I've ever had, 
has been walking into an undefined situation and bringing definition to it. That's what I like to do. And Mm -hmm. so when I talk to other people, sometimes I forget that not everybody has that desire or inclination or skill set. And it's really easy to project your inclinations onto another person when you're talking to them. Especially if that's your natural state, right? You like that space and say, I'm very similar, like, we, and I probably didn't realize it till towards the end of my career. I'm like, actually liked it a lot more when it was ambiguous. When you were, you wake up in the morning and you go do something like, oh, I've never done this before. This is a new challenge. You got to define it. You got to work it out. The machine's not fully built yet. I think that's the best part. And we always talk about building SaaS companies in, you got to get your people right. You got to build the machine and the replication and you got to know your numbers. And that building of that machine part is what excites me. It's what I love the best. And but I think for a lot of people coming into something and they're like, cool, well, what am I supposed to do today? And you're like, you figure it out. That's part of the job. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's challenging. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Chris, going back to the hiring profile, does that change with the growth phase oh, of the yeah. business? Like, totally. How dramatically did that change? And how is it changing now at P-Club? Are you reviewing that? I think the word dramatic is a relative term. So it's hard to say exactly how much it changes, but it certainly changes, right? The first reps you hire in a business are basically entrepreneurs who don't have the opportunity yet to be their own entrepreneurs. (laughs) That's what I've noticed Mm. is there are probably people who want to be entrepreneurs. They just don't have the resources to do it yet. And and that's the profile of a very early stage startup. And that's what we hire for right now at P-Club more or less, right? There's more definition to it than that, but that's the overarching theme. When you get into growth, you hire builders, which is similar to the entrepreneur, but it's a little bit different, right? Builders typically need at least some raw material to work off of, and then they can build on top of it. And that was most of our time during at Gong. And then as you scale and mature and you have that repeatable system, then you need to hire people who you can plug into that system and who like executing and optimizing an existing process. And the people you hired probably become a poor fit for the company. I was one of those people, right? That's one of the reasons I left Gong is I tried one more job at Gong before I left. I was like getting ready to leave. And then I took on this final role that I had, which was head of new products, right? It was like, oh, this is perfect. Like introducing new products. That sounds right up my alley. But we were just mature enough at that point where it wasn't really lighting my soul on fire anymore. And so at one point I was, this is going to sound not humble of me to say, but I was probably one of the most valuable people within the organization. And then at the end of it, I had no fire in my belly and I wanted to go start something new. And is that where the motivation for P Club and Quota Signal came from? Or did you already have that brewing up? So I was an entrepreneur, like we discussed before, joining Gong, and I stayed at Gong for as long as I did because Mm -hmm. I've always just wanted to be an entrepreneur. As a funny side story, when I was leaving Gong, I went to breakfast with a meet and I told him I was considering leaving. And I told him Gong will be the last company I ever work for. Mark my words. And then I told him, I used to think I wanted to be a chief revenue officer. I found out I don't want to be that. I want to hire and fire a chief revenue officer. Nice. Maybe for the audience in this part of the world, can you share a little bit about what you're doing at P Club, what it's all about? What are you trying to do? What's the vision? Where are you going with it? Bunch of questions thrown at you all at once. I'll do best to knock out all yeah. of them and you tell me how I do. So P Club is an online education company that aims to transform salespeople's and sales organizations' skills. So we work with some of the best pre-vetted sales practitioners in the world 
and we create online courses with them and we put them into our library. And the idea behind P Club is that sales is not a skill. It's too big of a thing to be a skill. If you deconstruct sales into its component parts, it's dozens, maybe even hundreds of skills, depending on the role, right? Like enterprise sales is a good example. Enterprise sales isn't a skill, but quantifying pain is, writing business cases is, accessing power is, selling to power is, negotiating with procurement is. And so we create courses to address each one of these skills in a way where sales training becomes very precise and therefore helps dramatically improve people's skill gaps. So we like to think of it as a skill transformation platform, right? Some people think we're a typical sales training company and we're not because we're not offering a methodology. We're not offering a sales process. We're offering the skills people need to execute those methodologies. So that's what we do at P Club, right? It's almost like Coursera, but for sales where you can go sign up for courses by yourself on our website. And we have a ton of people that do that. And then we also offer an enterprise subscription to companies who want to equip their salespeople with the best online education in the world, along with specific learning paths and exercises and other things that help translate knowledge into skills. How'd I do? What question did I miss? No, you've done great. The leading question from there on, I was going to ask is, are the courses split by personas or are they purely focused, as you mentioned, about skill set? So, am I BDR? Do I sign up to a particular course? Yes. Yeah, totally. Okay. We've got work to do, right? We've only made so much progress on that, but we have BDR curriculum, we have SMB courses, mid market AE, enterprise, frontline managers. And eventually we aspire to getting into other adjacent roles like account managers, CSMs, sales engineers, maybe even partners. So I am very passionate about self-education and learning, right? That's one of the things that I view as a mission of mine is to lift economic prosperity by teaching people economically valuable skills. This goes back to the yeah. thing and told me at the amusement park. He said, if you want to do well for yourself economically, learn how to sell. And I did that. And now P Club is my vehicle to bring that to the rest of the world. Nice one. Mate, whilst you're doing all of this, and then all of a sudden, like AI is coming, Chad GBT, everyone talks about it, whether you're jumping on the Uber or you're grabbing a beer at a local pub. What impact is that having on your business approach? We have a few things that we're working on under the hood, but I'll give you a little bit of a sneak peek. Skill assessments and sales are very old archaic, right? The way they typically show up is there's a couple different ways. One is you take a personality assessment, which is not a skill assessment. It's a personality assessment. Yeah. And the other thing is you hire a consultant to go deep dive and observe your reps and do a write-up and a report. And so one of the things that we're aiming to offer within the P Club learning platform, hopefully within the next like six to nine months is AI driven skill assessments where salespeople, you can measure and benchmark their skills and they're interactive with AI, right? And that's going to show up in a bunch of different ways, depending on what the skill is, but say it's measuring their cold email skills. It starts off with them writing a cold email and then an AI bot responding and see how, seeing how they respond. And eventually we plan on, we'll see if the technology gets mm -hmm. there, but doing like AI role plays, right? Imagine like practicing your discovery skills on a fake human who can then 
break down your skills and what you did well and what you could improve on and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of applications, but none of it's come to fruition yet. These are directions we're moving in. Mm, that's very cool. That, that's awesome, man. I love the whole role play experiment. That you Imagine that you pitch into companies instead of putting your new rep that you've gone and he's done his P club courses and you've done his four weeks of onboarding and then you put him into the wild and go, here's live leads that we've spent X dollars to generate go do it you'd actually get them to demo that stuff out with ai first which has cost you whatever you're paying for your monthly subscription before you start giving them live leads and we've all burnt paid dollar leads on reps when they're starting out and you go in and you watch them do the demo and you're like oh my god that's the worst thing i've ever seen and they get there eventually but everyone starts somewhere that's probably the most positive discussion we've had around ai in sales so far and all the ones we've done yeah absolutely so if you did have your crystal ball chris any future guidance as to where things are going to land especially when it comes to sales like how far is ai going to come into the space of sales what does the future of sales look like three years down the track i don't know i try not to make too many predictions because i feel like it's too easy to pretend where the world is going to go and i'm trying to skate to where the puck is going but i can only see maybe a year down the road and so I think my answer is just some of the things I mentioned, right? And I'm speaking through the lens mm -hmm. of sales education and skill building and that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there are some disruptive things going on in sales that I'm not aware of. There's a ton going on when it comes to prospecting, mm -hmm. right? Like Gong and Outreach and Clary, yeah. they're all working on somehow using generative AI when it comes to prospecting. But this is one of those things where I don't claim to be an expert at being able to make a bunch of future predictions and... I sleep well at night knowing that. You're a wise man. Hey, do want to pick your brains. Obviously, we work with a lot of founders that are in the early stages, right, Chris? We touched on the fact just because you worked at a big logo, it doesn't translate into success necessarily at startups. But can you talk about perhaps some of the non-obvious characteristics that you look for in a sales rep, especially in the early stages? Was there ever such a thing that was part of your hiring process? These two go hand in hand, but business acumen and then just like raw intellectual horsepower go a really long way, right? There, there's this guy named, I'm going to butcher how you say his name. I think his name is Keith Rowe and he's a venture capitalist. He's like a billionaire venture capitalist, like very high profile guy. And he has this analogy that he talks about where you want to hire barrels instead of ammunition. And it's a violent analogy, but it's a good one. The analogy is like the barrel of a gun versus the bullet of a gun. And his point is, if somebody's a barrel, you can just point them in the right direction or better yet, they'll do their own pointing and they go figure it out, right? That's where the intellectual horsepower comes in versus ammunition. If you hire somebody who's ammunition, you really have to do a lot of setting them up to be successful. Right? You have to point the gun in the right direction. You have to pull the trigger. Once you have all those things in place, then they'll go to exactly where you direct them to. So I think that's one. And I think business acumen, similar but still different than intellectual horsepower, is probably the most underrated body of knowledge when it comes to sales success. Right, Because if you're being sold to and you're a sophisticated business person, right, you're like an executive or whatever, you know how much business acumen or lack thereof the salesperson has. And most of them scream a lack of business acumen, which means the only time you're going to interact with the salesperson is when you need to, when they have something that you need, like a product demo, and you can't get it in any other way. Versus being a peer, like practically being a peer of these executives because your business acumen is tight. 
and you know your way around how a business operates and product market strategy implications and your way, hopefully even around like the financials of a business, right? The difference between the three financial statements and what ROI and ROE stand for and all these kind of things. So I think business acumen, we should probably create like a full curriculum of courses for business acumen, because to me, it's probably the most starved body of knowledge when it yeah. comes to sales. Yeah. Great tips. And as a fellow founder, Chris, what's the single biggest mistake that you see founders make when scaling? Not investing enough in marketing. I think that's not just applicable to scaling. I also think that's applicable to the early stages. One of the things we did at Gong was the VP of marketing was one of the CEO's first hires. And we built an audience that sales could then sell into, right? Most startups only talk about product and sales. And that works for a lot of people, but it's a brute force way to grow a company. I'm embarrassed to admit that I haven't, right, I have a head of sales starting in a couple months, but I've been doing all the selling for P Club today. And I'm embarrassed to admit that I haven't sent a prospecting email since January because I haven't had to. We have really good marketing and all of it comes to us. Now, eventually we're going to have to grow out of that. But man, this P Club with this marketing machine we have compared to the first startup I did, which had exactly zero marketing. Oh, we're having so much more fun and it's so much easier and we're making so much more money. So I think investing in marketing is yeah. probably good marketing anyway, is probably the answer. That's spot on, right? But just for the fellow founders, then can you give two or three main things to do when it comes to marketing? Because marketing is such a broad subject. Like where yeah. do you well, actually go? That's a great point. So what I don't suggest you do is go whip up a bunch of paid advertising. When I say marketing in this context, I'm talking about building an audience of super fans, right? Building LinkedIn presence, building, doing content marketing like podcasts, building your email list, super underrated, by the way. People get on me all the time for gating some of our content, right? We have cheat sheets and stuff that you put here and a lot of these snobby marketers say, oh, don't get your content. And I'm like, my man. Our email list is a license to print money. I am going to gate all my content all I damn well please. Yeah. So I think that's what the answer is. Building an audience of super fans who rave about your content as much as they rave about your product. Is it a good point? Because I think I reckon five minutes ago, everyone's mind defaulted to paid advertising. You're like, invest in marketing. Everyone, sweet. I'm going to put an extra hundred grand into Google. Yeah. But what you're yeah. really you're talking about actually you're building a following, right? You're building these the people that are gonna help leverage you up because they're gonna help sell your product. They're gonna be talking about it to their friends and their family and everyone else that they meet because they're champions of what you're doing. And that is probably something that even we under invested in mm-hmm. over the years. And it's just something that if you look back once you get larger, you're like, Wow, I wonder what would happen if we'd done that earlier instead of being a later part of the journey when you start and put that time and effort and firepower behind building your brand up and having more content that you're putting out and you're making available. There's this guy named Russell Brunson. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Yeah, I know Russell. He grew ClickFunnels from zero to a hundred million in I think five years or something. Like no venture capital either. That's insane. Yeah. And he tells this story in one of his books about hiring somebody in his business who shadowed him for the first year. And the guy, after shadowing Russell, he commented, I cannot believe how much you're publishing. He would do a podcast every day. He was at the time on Periscope doing Facebook lives, all these things. And Russell has this piece of advice that he repeats in all three of his books, 
where he says, if you pick a platform and you commit to publishing on it every day for a year and you don't miss a day, including Christmas or whatever holiday means something to you, you'll never have to worry about money again. And I believe that, right? I take that seriously. I write on LinkedIn every day, sometimes multiple times a day. I send what some people might say too many emails to our email list, right? Two to three a week. I do three podcasts per week. I'm starting to dip my toes into Instagram, but I'm not very good at it. But mark my words, I'll crack the code. And it just creates a flywheel for your business. That's a really good point, right? We were talking about it last night, actually, over at It's Like, you're a prolific LinkedIn writer. Like, you're in that space. It probably comes naturally to you by now. And obviously with all the blogs and podcasting, but a lot of people just don't invest, don't want to put themselves out there. I think you do it really well. A lot of people I've seen in Gong do it really well. Gong as a business does it really well. But so many founders that we've come across of late, Chris, they've got a brilliant product. They've got a great story. Too mindful of putting it out there. Don't want to say anything just to not piss someone off. Any tips for those? <laughs> well, if you do, you are going to piss a lot of people off. And you have to be comfortable with that. I don't check anymore, but there are like many subgroups in Reddit that like bash me all the time. And it used to really bother me right a year ago when I was like really getting going with this stuff, it bothered me and it doesn't anymore. In fact, it's a signal that I'm doing something well. There's this guy named Dan Kennedy. Dan Kennedy is like the godfather of direct response marketing. And I want to be careful with this because this could be taken in a, the wrong way by a lot of people. So just let me give that warning to it. But he has this quote where he says, if you don't piss somebody off by noon each day, you're not marketing your business hard. And if you're a startup CEO and you have a desire to be liked by everybody, it's going to be a hard road for you, right? You have gotten to be, and I'm not saying go deliberately be an asshole to people, but you can't water things down. You've got to be a little bit polarizing. Otherwise you're not going to move your market, let alone internal leadership things, right? Leadership's not a popularity contest. Sometimes, even though my co-founder's my best friend, sometimes I think he might secretly hate me because I'm a pain in the ass. Yeah. You gotta have that healthy tension, right? It's the Steve Jobs quote. If you wanna be liked, I said last week. Like yeah. a bunch of guys on Wall Street, they'll say, if you want a friend on Wall Street, go get a dog. I've never <laughs> worked on Wall Street and I'm not advocating yeah. what some of these people do, but there's some I think, wisdom. I think that's how he's your best friend, mate, because you can be brutal with each other. That's the best part of having friends. See, I mean, it's... I'm not prolific on any social media at all, be it personal or professional side. I'm the newbie. I'm learning to do that sort of stuff, following Ricky's footsteps. So I can't keep up with his content. <laughs> Working way up there. But it is one of those things. Like I was CEO for 10 years and it wasn't something that came naturally to me to actually go and put it out there. And even now in Ventron, I'm still learning to get to that point. And for me, it pisses people off every day just by existing. But it's understanding the value you get right from doing this stuff it's huge the value in it is massive you look at even our tiny little startup business that we've got now venture on post pre ricky coming and joining and putting it into to what it is now when it was just me and curtis and graham running around like we put what one post up here every six months <laughs> ricky's coming we're doing a thousand a day and, but it makes a massive difference people know who you are people who are interested appear and that's probably the greatest bit of advice you've given everyone if you put it out there enough, the people who are interested will come to you. It is significantly easier to sell to people who have already come to you than it is to actually have to go get them and then convince them that this is a good idea and then sell them on what return and investment they're going to get on that and then finally close the deal. You can cut a couple of steps out, get people to be excited about it, 
by the time they get to you. Yeah, make your business a magnet. That's yeah. it. That's it. Hey, Chris, do you want to lean on your experience and ask you this last one important question that we often get asked a lot? How do you structure the first comp plan for the early hires? Comp plans, I don't think there's going to be one answer because the point of a comp plan is to achieve a business objective. And so the first question you have to answer before you ask, what should my comp plan be, is what objective are we trying to achieve as a business, right? Is it to acquire new customers and that's the singular focus? Is it to grow revenue irrespective of where that revenue comes from, right? Existing mm -hmm. customers, new customers, different markets. Is it to introduce a new product? Is it to tap into a new market? Generally speaking, though, with that big caveat aside and that preamble, most startups are trying to acquire new customers, right? That's the focus. That's mm. also the definition of a startup is you've got to go acquire new customers. And so you should be orienting the commission payout to be almost exclusively on new customer acquisition. Don't worry too much about upsell. And I would also argue you should be pretty generous with the accelerators on your comp plan, right? Comp plans have a way of being very generous during the startup phase and starting to get a little bit stingier as the business matures and becomes predictable. And that's by design. There's a reason for that. And it's because you've got salespeople who are betting their careers on your company being successful. And most salespeople, like even if you give them some stock options, they're probably not getting a lot. And so you've got to give them an opportunity to earn some big commission checks. And when they hit 100% of their number, their commission rate ratches up. And when they hit 120%, it ratches up a little bit more. So it's hard for me to give one size fits all answers. But the first question you got to ask is what strategic objective are you trying to achieve? Design your comp plan with that in mind. And then if you're still an early startup, it is worth you being generous when people perform. You can be stingy if they don't perform and you should be because you're a cash sensitive mm. organization. But if they're bringing in cash to your organization and a lot of it, be generous with it. Mike, great tips. Love that. The one thing we have not at PLG yet. Last night we were at a tech thing and I asked a bunch of people, how they like PLG, is that how you're selling? And I got some people like, yep, yeah, we're pure PLG, that's all we do. And others who are like, PLG doesn't really exist because I still have to sell the people and I still have to do a demo, I still have to get it through. What is your thoughts on that whole I, that's another one where I don't think there's one size fits all answer, right? The answer to all these questions is it depends on the market and the product market strategy. I do think there is something to like a lot of business buyers buy by leaning on groundswell from their team these days. In fact, P Club has a pretty good kind of quasi product led growth motion where we'll get a lot of individual contributors signing up for our courses. Yeah. And we use that insight to then go prospect into the company. But beyond that, I actually don't have experience with PLG. I'm new to this. And I think, you know, the answer to these questions depends on what your market demands for your company to be successful. But for somebody to say every company should be product led, I always roll my eyes at statements like that. Yeah. The same sales talent to lead a PLG business unit as opposed to an enterprise one? I would think they're probably different, right? Particularly when it comes to like outbound prospecting versus PLG. Running the sales cycle might be a little more simple, but there's probably some unique skills that you would want to bake into your hiring profile if you're running a PLG company or segment of your company versus an outbound enterprise one. Yeah. Yeah. Fair points. All right. We can move into quick five questions. Okay. 
Easy ones, Chris. Favorite sports team? Miami Dolphins. Oh, no, I actually take that back. University of Utah, the Utah Utes football team. That's not a professional sports team, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Did you go to the same college or what's the reason for it? No, it was always my dream to, and for some reason I didn't. I can't really remember why, but I don't really follow sports super closely, but I will watch Utes football whenever I can, which I'm excited college football starting now because it's just, it's part of my roots. I grew up in Salt Lake City. Yeah. Favorite music genre? Metalcore. Yeah. Okay. The Sean's Land. Yeah. Yeah. Who's your favorite? So I don't know if you guys, if you could consider them pure metalcore, but A Day to Remember is probably my favorite band, which is more more punk than anything. Yeah. Um, I really liked August Burns Red back in the day. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. But, yeah. This is the first time we've had somebody likes proper music on There's not a lot of there really isn't a lot of us. No. It's usually Ricky asks that question, they talk about rap for ten minutes and I sit there going, huh? I've never heard any of these people. Chris, do you have a favorite movie of all time? Saving Private Ryan is probably my favorite movie. Yeah, nice. nice. Yeah, that's a good one. And my favorite place to visit? Hawaii. Yeah? Why? Yeah. Because I'm very type A and driven. And when I go to Hawaii, I shed all of that in a way that it just automatically happens. It's like, as soon as I'm there, I automatically relax and I stop being a pain in the ass to everybody around me and trying to drive them to the city. You go at least once a year? Is that like a... Well, we'll skip some years. Like we didn't go this year. We went a year ago and we're planning on going again in April. Yeah. Nice. So everyone should hey, put up with you being an ass in between that time when you get there. I get it. Here's the number one question. Like, this is what really makes or breaks the podcast. Peanut butter. Crunchy or smoke? Probably crunchy, but I almost never buy crunchy peanut butter, but it's because I have little kids who prefer creamy. So I like crunchy. Both of us peanut butter, though. Peanut butter is great. Yeah. How could yeah. you go wrong with either one? I just force my kids to eat crunchy. They, they've never tasted smooth, so they'll never know it exists. Thanks once again, Chris, for making the time and sharing all your insights, mate. Truly appreciate it. Thanks for having me.